Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Happy New Year! Today we're continuing the Staffordshire Horde Project. We were really fortunate to be able to speak with Deb Klemperer about the Horde. She's going to share with us what's been happening on the museum side, some theories about interpretation, and other really interesting tidbits. Now, Deb is perfect for this because she's kind of been at the eye of the storm of this whole situation. You might have noticed that archaeology has turned into something of a rock star discipline over the last couple of years, and that's largely due to finds like the Staffordshire Horde and the possible find of Richard III. And so she's going to be able to give us an idea of what it was like to be right in the middle of that when the Staffordshire Horde is being first discovered and then when it was released to the public. So we're really fortunate to be able to talk to her. And as always, if you'd like to know more about the Staffordshire Horde, you can go to my website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and click on the links to the Staffordshire sites there. Or you can just go straight to staffordshirehorde.org.uk. All right, let's get this going. My name's Deb Klemperer. I'm Principal Collections Officer, that's Head Curator, at the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery in Stoke-on-Trent in Staffordshire. And I've been an archaeologist for nearly 40 years. I trained at Birmingham University and specialised in Saxons and Vikings and visited amazing sites, type sites they're called, in Scandinavia. And then became a curator here 23 years ago, a job I really enjoy. And I've been very fortunate to be closely involved with the Staffordshire Horde from the early days of its find. Well, how did you get involved in this particular project? I, first of all, heard about it very shortly after the metal detectors had recovered some of it because he started digging up the find and then contacted a finds liaison officer, which is a government-operated scheme, who then reported to as many people as possible who might be interested because he was immediately looking to see if, even in the early days, if a museum wished to acquire. This is even before the archaeological excavation started. And then I visited the site on one of the first days of the dig, which was a secret dig, or completely secret with security men and everything. It's very exciting. It had to be kept secret because a lot of metal detectorists are really good folks, but one or two, there are one or two baddies out there, and they would have been terribly excited by lots and lots of gold coming out of the ground. So did the organisations immediately know how important this dig was and how important this find was? Immediately. What, because Terry rang the finds liaison officer, he went to Terry's house and he immediately knew how important it was. And he knew he had to get it into safekeeping and that something had to happen at the field where the find was made because Terry had told him that not everything was out of the ground. And roping archaeologists, it all had to be done quickly and quietly. That's what happened. And it was amazing. And Staffordshire County Council, the local council, archaeologists were involved. Birmingham University archaeologists were involved. Dr Kevin Leahy, who's a specialist on Saxon metalwork, was involved. And he catalogued the find completely in time for the treasure inquest. So everything happened very quietly, but very quickly. And the farmer delights in telling people that he fobbed people off who wandered up and said, what's going on? Why have you got security men? We're saying health and safety or there are dead bodies up there. (laughs) And people believed all this nonsense and didn't actually go searching on the field. We don't think anyone tried to get on the field because these security men unusually were there day and night. And one of them didn't know what he was guarding. He wasn't told. Wow. So the excavation happened perhaps more speedily than a normal excavation would. Lots of different organisations worked closely together to secure the find, to get it out of the ground, to catalogue it and to get it through the treasure process as swiftly as possible. And they knew 
from the word go it was really important and they knew that we had to handle the promotion of it really carefully and so we were meeting with various press officers from our organisations very quickly and when it was announced to the world I have never seen anything like it and I've been to big press launches before for artefacts it was serried ranks of the world's press and they were all absolutely fascinated and firing off questions that museum and staff and archaeologists weren't necessarily used to answering, you know, saying, what do you think the value is? We don't do valuations. Someone else does that for us. Um, (laughs) It was really, really exciting, really exciting atmosphere, and it's typical, really, that treasure, the word treasure, the legal definition of treasure is interesting, but also the word treasure makes people really excited. And for it to be from a Lord of the Rings-type warrior or warrior king was even more exciting. Absolutely. Well, I've got more questions regarding uh, the speed of the dig, but why don't we first talk about what the hoard is and how rare this find is and why it caused such an explosion of interest and why it's so important. So can you give us a brief explanation of the hoard and its importance? Yeah, certainly. Altogether, the hoard appears to be around 3,500 pieces. Now, some of those are tiny, tiny pieces There are many, many pieces which are less than 0.1 of a gram in weight. And the whole hoard, if you put it together, would fit into a box, a chest that you could carry easily. It's largely gold. It's largely, for want of a better word, male warrior bling. So it's it's high-status, kingly or senior men who belong to the king equipment, but completely lacking any blades. There's no swords there are no knives. I thought there was no iron at all, but there is a piece, one piece of iron which we're having looked at at the moment, which appears to be contemporary. There's no female dress accessories. There's no female accoutrements at all. We seem to lack quite a lot of buckles. You'd expect more buckles to buckle this thing onto your um, baldric or whatever to hold pieces in place. There are a few pieces which are really enigmatic and interesting. Some are obviously Christian and maybe from processional crosses. And then pieces which may have been fitted onto Bibles and the edges of Bibles. There may be pieces that are from saddle fittings, shrine or chest fittings and other things which are marvellous, wonderful to describe. We still don't know what they are. But the research has just started in the last few months. One of the things I noticed was absent from your description was body armour and shields and that sort of thing. Was there much defensive? Yes, I omitted to say there are pieces from at least one helmet. And it's very, very interesting because what we've got is one cheek piece and a piece, a strip from what appears to be another cheek piece. And there are quite a lot of bands that held decorated foils. Foils are very thin pieces, in this case of silver, that were held onto the base of the helmet, which may have been iron. And what's interesting about the Staffordshire Horde foils, some of which have got figures of warriors with shields and spears and so on, is that they're silver, whereas Sutton Hoo's helmet fragments, I think, are silver gilt so it's a it seems to be higher status material and we think that the date of all this material is around that it would have gone into the ground in the perhaps the last quarter of the 7th century so 675 670 to about 700 AD and the region during that period would have been Mercia yes. at that point right yes um, it's made people really proud to be from this area and people suddenly going our, our local police forces the West Mercian police force people go ah oh, that's why the word mercy is used. So people are more aware now of their history, which is great. And mercy at that point was fairly militaristic. Well, it certainly had been. Uh, you're alluding to Pender, who died in battle in 655. 
who established his base by fighting a great deal. He'd ally with different tribal groupings, the Welsh. He didn't care whether they were Christian or pagan. He himself was the last great pagan warrior king in Mercia and consolidated and enlarged his kingdom at that time. This horde, this horde of warrior kit, appears to date to about perhaps 20 years after he died in terms of when it was in the ground. There are artefacts which are much older than Pender's time in the hoard, but as you know, if you've got a group of material, it all has to date from the latest item in that group of material, and we think some of the pieces are very late 7th century. Now, the interesting thing about Penda is that we know that his neighbours, at least one of his neighbours, attempted to buy him off at one point. So is that that being taken into consideration that maybe, say, uh, King Wolfhair, uh, since Penda was almost certainly dead by the time this uh, this hoard was buried. I mean, this this had to do with an attempted bribe of, of Mercia, or is is that completely...? That's, that's a good idea. The research programme that's just we've just started, we'll look at a number of options, looking at what's in there and where it all might have come from. And one of the options would be that it was booty from a battle, and there were some battle sites, as you know, are quite well named and dated, but we don't know precisely where they were. Uh, the finds site is very interesting. If it was looted from a battle, you're very close to the Roman road, which ran west-east across that part of South Staffordshire. It's called Watling Street. It's a modern road called the A5, and it led to Viriconium or Roxeter, towards where modern-day Shrewsbury is. And the site was very close to the Roman town of Wall, or Letterseaton, which was on the A5, and close as well to Lichfield, which is the medieval focus, the move away from Wall towards the sort of northeast slightly. So it could well have been battle loot that was buried. It could be deliberately put into the ground with no intention of recovery. Archaeologists, for want of any better term at the moment, call that structured deposition. It's known in prehistory. It's increasingly known in Roman deposits. And it's really hard for us to understand that some group of people, for some reason, would put this amount of beautiful and you know, these symbols of power, these valuable pieces into the ground with no intent of recovery. We understand it in a burial, don't we? We don't understand it in any other form. You're essentially alluding to, like, what the Celts did, where they would put weapons and and whatnot into water uh, and just deposit them. Uh, I mean, this, I think, is slightly different, but the Saxons did understand history. They understood the landscape. They understood, because they quite often did put burials of their own into prehistoric burial mounds. They understood that those mounds were important. They understood the lie of the land. They would have understood about the Roman road, but they wouldn't have necessarily understood who it belonged to or who made it. You may know the poem The Ruin. It appears to be a Saxon description of Roman Bath after it had fallen into disrepair, and they said giants built this amazing thermal spring. So it may have been put there in a ritual way. It might have been buried with the intent of recovery, not immediately after a battle, but perhaps because of something else going on. Hopefully, we'll start to answer these questions during the research, and we'll keep you informed. Oh, yes, please. Along Watling Street, until, what, the 17th century or so, there was a lot of problems with ambushes and rakes, for lack of a better term. Is there a possibility that this was due to a transport of wealth or even a transport of a small contingent of wealthy noblemen and they were ambushed? Is that something that... Who knows? I think that the material could have been quite easily carried in in a box or bag, or two bags, saddlebags, so people may not have known that it was happening. When it was buried, the lie of the land may have been different. I mean, the farmer talks about a mound having been at the spot where the find was made, but 
there's no old evidence or aerial photographic evidence that there was anything like a prehistoric mound there. But there would have been more soil, certainly, than there is now, because what you get on a mound, when you're ploughing, of course, if you're on a, a hilltop, the soil starts to wash away and right. gets thinner, and that's why this came to the surface. Now, all of this material, all of these treasures were found in the plough soil. Yes, yeah, that's really interesting. Do we see any evidence of damage from the plough soil? Because we know that a lot of the items have been damaged. They have been, but there might be one or two pieces which might have been damaged either by the plough or Terry Herbert, the finder, digging, because, of course, he was digging initially, not knowing what amazing things lay beneath. The ploughing happened eight months before the find was made. The ploughing happened in October, September, October 2008. One of these pieces, I've shown you already the eye, one of the pieces that looks like an eye, lay on the surface, glittering in the sunlight for eight months before Terry found it. It was just there. And there's a photo. I think the finder just wiped the ground and it was there with with the grass growing around it. It's just staggering that it wasn't damaged more. You think, well, once it was on the surface, wouldn't the wind and the rain and climate do terrible things to it? Gold is very, very durable. It does have problems sometimes, but not, it's not as durable as people think. The silver, we think, may have suffered a little more. And if you averaged out the average weight of the silver finds against the gold finds, the silver seems to have fragmented more and may have reacted to light a little. But yes, it is incredible that there isn't more damage sustained from modern actions The damage that you see and that everyone notices with the mangled pieces appears to be from where the pieces were pulled from the swords they were originally attached to. So the bulk of the material I'm talking about, the sword fittings of various sorts, so there's the end of the hilt or handle called a pommel, and then there are various hilt plates, those are fittings which would have fitted either side of perhaps a bone-covered or ivory-covered or simple wooden or fabric-covered handle or hilt. And they have been, in some cases, pretty mangled. There seems to have been perhaps using pliers or pincers to move the pieces off. A lot of the pommels have a squeezed profile. And that may have been done in a hurry, or maybe it was done without some degree of care because the stuff could be recycled. So do you know if the landowner had ploughed exceptionally deep that year that the hoard was found, or had it been just ploughed over and over and over again, and just this time we lucked out? He ploughed it intermittently because he ploughed it to put grass in for the local veterinary surgeon's horses to feed on the field. So he'd owned the field since the early 80s and ploughed it intermittently. But as I explained, the highest part of any field, especially if there's a slope, if you're ploughing, the soil starts to wash away over over a period of time. So you don't necessarily have to plough any deeper. What we have to be thankful for is Fred didn't use a modern method of drilling grass seed directly into the ground. Otherwise, these pieces would have been smashed. And we should also be immensely thankful that the modern M6 toll road, so the motorway toll road, which runs very close to the A5 at that point, one of the routes originally was going to run through that field. If that had happened, these huge excavators and diggers would have moved stuff without noticing. They might have seen one or two things, but it would have been scattered to landfill sites that would have taken the surplus soil away somewhere. So let's just be thankful that fate delivered it to us in the hands of Fred and his wonderful plough. Now, to put this find in perspective, how does it compare with Sutton Who? At the moment, and other colleagues have said this who are far more specialised, it's their specialism to uh, work with this period of Saxon material, is that it doesn't overtake Sutton Who or better it in a sense. It matches it, it helps fill out the story. And many of the pieces are very comparable to pieces found at Sutton Who. And the quality of the workmanship, the style, 
the fact that there's so much cloisonné in the gold and garnet work and that the material has very similar animal ornament and so on. There's a slightly greater range, admittedly, in the Staffordshire hoard and it's increased the amount of filigree in England by about 40%. It's one of these super finds. Everything is excessive about it. The way it looks, the amount of it, the effect it's had on the public... The sad thing is it has no actual context because it was found in the plough soil. It's not going to date itself that way. There were no coins in it. But it will help us understand more about... And it'll be not only Sutton Hoo, but there's a, a site being written up now, which would be really exciting, called Prittlewell, the Prittlewell Prince burial, which included jewellery, but also drinking vessels and so on. It will all help tell the story more about how this material was made, the links, as you say, the links around the world that these Saxons had in different tribal groupings. It's going to be really exciting. There's going to be so much about it that we can't even imagine yet. One thing that really jumps out at me when, when I was looking at it is the abundance of gold in this. When you read Beowulf, you, you hear these great treasures and you read of this wealth. And then you look at Anglo-Saxon treasures that we've found over time. And typically you don't see that level of wealth no. until this hoard. Absolutely. And people immediately made that connection. And the public did as well. So that at both Birmingham and Stoke, we use quotations from Beowulf on the walls of the exhibition. Certainly at Stoke-on-Trent we did. And we had on sale Seamus Heaney's illustrated translation of Beowulf because it's very approachable. It's got lots of lovely pictures in it. And this isn't a wealthy area, and yet these books were flying off the shelf. So much so that Seamus Heaney's publisher rang us up and said, what's going on? Couldn't understand why this one small museum was selling vast quantities of his books. So <laughs> the residents of Beowulf and, I may add, and I've said before, the Lord of the Rings films and the books for those who've read the books as well as seen the films, had a very powerful impact on the audience. We get large numbers of teenagers, which normally difficult to get into museums and a very powerful personal response to the pieces which is what you see in Beowulf and Lord of the Rings. Now going back to the dig yeah. uh, one of the things that that I noticed while reading articles is that there wasn't any Roman pottery or artifacts from other medieval periods. Is that unusual for a dig on Watling Street to, for it to be entirely Anglo-Saxon? It is interesting that there's no Roman material because it's fairly close to the road, but it's far enough away from the road for us to not hit on any of the buildings that may have been along the line of the road. But you're right, it's very interesting that there aren't any other finds of other periods there. I know they're doing a field walking exercise soon, or they have done it because Fred was going to plough the field again. And if you're walking up and down field walking, it's called, you, you have to look really carefully because a lot of pottery sort of pottery you mentioned. Roman pottery is easier to see, but medieval pottery certainly isn't. Saxon pottery wouldn't be. But there appears to be nothing else there on the immediate hoard find spot. In the same field, and about 100 yards away, a copper alloy artefact of the same date was found, but it's obviously not part of the hoard. Well, that's really interesting. And I know that nearby there's a location known as Hammerwich. Can you tell the audience what Hammerwich translates to? In England, a lot of the divisions of the way areas are ruled by local councils are based on very ancient boundaries, Saxon boundaries, usually later in date than the Horde. So I think Staffordshire came into being around the 9th century. And then within that, you've got areas known as parishes, based originally around a church. And the parish that this Horde was found in is called Hammerwich. And those words are really, really interesting. I'm not a place name expert, but they are obviously linked to working, perhaps metal or in some way or other, Hammerwich. And it's an unusual place name. And I think at the moment there is a lot of work going on on place name studies, field name studies, looking at the hedges in the area, trying to get an idea of that whole landscape. It's very, very... There's lots of exciting work going on, not just work on the hoard. 
Now, since we're outside of the Roman era, we don't have any coins to help date the objects. So. No, they're all melted in, in the objects. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks to the, Sorry. the healthy recycling Anglo-Saxon culture. Yeah. So what processes do we use to date the artifacts that have been found? That is ever such an interesting question, and that's what's happening with this catalogue, in, in that the cataloguer, Chris Fern, who's working through the money we've gained from English heritage, realises that certainly for filigree, he may have to just start a new typology, which is very exciting. But broadly speaking, the pieces appear to date themselves according to the current existing typologies. So that we do seem to have a group of material which the earliest may be about 500 AD, so it's an antique when it goes into the ground, and the latest date appears to be towards the end of the 7th century. Again, I can't give you a definitive date, but say perhaps 675, something like that. The issues arise, and this is very exciting and interesting, is that some of the pieces have got early and late dated typological decoration on the same piece. So some of the typologies are going to have to change, and this will have huge ramifications because that sort of style and design doesn't just date metalware, it dates carved pieces, it dates manuscripts. Some manuscripts don't have dates either and they don't easily date themselves. So there's all this dating going on around design that has been characterised by someone who hadn't seen this amount of material. So just watch this space. I think the dating of what's called Salin style one and two animal ornament, the style two mainly in the hoard, but there appears to be one or two pieces of style one. That will change, I think, because we've got just so much more material available to us. But the big hassle is we don't have any absolute dating, so of course the search for organics goes on. That's going to be difficult as well, as you know, because it was plough soil fine. It has to be something definitely part of a fitting for us to be sure that we could date it and use it. So again, watch this space and come back and ask us next year. Uh, this question comes from Kathy Carroll. She said that she heard on the second special that the find span a number of centuries, which you just mentioned. Yes. And she'd like you to elaborate and say what experts think that means. Well, the National Geographic second program that Sit Carroll refers to was made before systematic analysis started, but they've got the broad date ranges correct. That's based on all the typologies. That's the by, by the word typology, I mean a change and style of a design from one 10 or 20 year period to the next. And stylistically, you can sometimes do that. The pieces do appear to have a broad date range. And the earliest dated artefacts, it's silver and it's plain, a silver pommel cap. And the shape of it and the measurements of it and the way it looks tell us that it's from the early 6th century. People who analyse this material stylistically like this will have worked with vast amounts over over the period of their careers but what's interesting is they will never have seen the amount and range of material that you have in this hoard grouping so to answer carol's question briefly there is a broad date range she will hear more about that during the coming year as the draft catalogue is finalized because there's no coinage it's all based on typology but as i've already said some of the material is so new so unusual and has never been seen before that these typologies will emerge over the next year as well so again ask your listeners to be patient there's a general website called staffordshirehoard.org.uk and certainly the conservators put blogs up there and there's an access to the research newsletter and anyone's welcome to read those research results that are summarized within those newsletters Now, when we were downstairs looking at the hoard, you pointed out the wear on some of the pommel caps Mm. and and things like that. Is it possible that this date range could be the result of some of these items being heirlooms? They might well be. I suppose if something was a treasured heirloom, it wouldn't be used and therefore wouldn't get worn. But 
anything like wear analysis will probably be focused in the second phase of research, which will be from this time next year. At the moment, it looks like you've got posing wear, so a soldier walking around with his very nice sword in its scabbard and he's resting the hand on the pommel cap and rubbing it as he wanders around and talks and gets drunk and so on. But there's also some wear which we thought was posing wear, but it may be from the plier-type tools pulling the sword apart. So some of the flattening may be one action through pressure. And I think with the sorts of kit we have, with Birmingham having the 3D microscopes and these scanning electron microscopes and so on, but British Museum, we may have a better idea about all that wear and whether some of it's because Great Grandad's sword was used for 150 years or shorter than that actually because life expectancy was less, so the generational changes are less. Let's talk about those swords really quickly. We have all these uh, sword fittings. Where are the blades and why aren't those included? Well, the blades themselves were works of art. They weren't just a knife or a sword. If you get the chance, do look online for images of replica Saxon swords that have been properly made because they were pattern welded. So you're twisting different qualities of steel and iron, some more carbonised, some less, or carburised probably. I don't, my metallurgy's very limited. Twisted, not just to form a pattern, but to strengthen the blade. And also you end up with a fairly light blade, but a very efficient cutting weapon. And they would have taken many, many hours of manufacture, perhaps as many as the glorious golden garnet fittings that we see in the hoard, and they could be reused. They're not that personal. The fittings on the sword are personal, so you can kill the warrior, you take the booty, you kill his memory by removing all the fittings that were his, and you can repurpose, you can redo that sword and make it yours. Have a whole new set of fittings, a whole new hilt, a whole new scabbard, for very little effort, really, because it would have taken many, many hours to make a blade like that. So that may be one reason why there's no sword blades. And also, as a colleague has said, you can, with just the, the fittings, you can carry them in a smaller space than having carrying a great wagon train of swords and scabbards and saddles and so on away. Now, gold is a really soft metal. Would it be a good idea to use gold for fittings? Wouldn't it be better to use steel or iron or something harder? Or You'd think so, wouldn't you? It's yeah. absolutely astonishing that they use these things. I mean, it's obviously a symbol of power, a sign of status, which people have used. People have used various materials right through from prehistory as signs of status. It does appear, again, we haven't done... We're at the beginnings of the metallurgical analysis, but it does appear that some may have had copper cores and then the gold's over the top. So when you look at the underside of some of the pommels, quite often we've left the soil in because we wanted to get them x-rayed first in case there's delicate things inside the soil. There appears to be, in some instances, a copper core, which is interesting. Some of them are just gold or just silver, but they may have other metals added to them to strengthen them somewhat. So it's some of the gold on some of the more handled pieces, the pieces which would have had most wear or most use, are less pure than others. But it's still staggering. You'd think that the garnets would fly off left, right and centre and the piece would come apart. But That's the thing, is we've got this wear on these blades, well, on the, the sword fittings, so it looks like they've been used. Mm. But at the same time, you can go back to the Bronze Age and we have decorative axes that were yeah. never used. Yeah. Just, so it's, it's just an, an odd dichotomy. So how has the finding of the hoard personally changed the way you view our buried past? It's utterly changed my life 
and everyone associated with it will say the same things to you. There, there are great frustrations sometimes because it's a huge, there's huge amounts of work, but it's so fascinating. And in terms of buried artefacts, it just shows you that there's so much out there still to be found that archaeologists make wonderful finds, metal detectors make finds that then turn into archaeological digs, and they can utterly change our lives. And what's fantastic about the hoard is it isn't just marvellous historically, artistically, emotionally for the finders and for, for specialists. It's just reached everybody around the planet. It was one of those stories that went worldwide straight away. Everyone connected with it. And that has meant that amount of interest and publicity has meant we've been able to display it in more places because we've re- received funds we wouldn't otherwise expect. There's been fantastic television programmes around it which get shown around the world. There's a constant interest in it. In fact, it's very hard for us to keep up with it, as you might imagine. And it's made me realise that though this is a super-duper find, if you do it in the right way, you can get that message on any artefact you find across. And you have to do it at a number of levels in a number of ways to appeal to people. Sometimes the objects themselves speak, but sometimes you have to give them a helping hand. Yes, I curate the hoard, but I actually curate half a million objects, most of that archaeology, and some of the finds are absolutely fantastic and I just have to present them in a way that hits people in the way that this find did. Now obviously people can come here to Stoke and go Mm. to the Potteries Museum. Yes. Uh, Where else can they go to find more information on the hoard? Well at the moment the hoard is displayed in a special exhibition at Stoke so we've got um, it's almost like a permanent gallery but it's up until the 1st of September 2013 and the artefacts keep changing because there's a research program going on so items go off to be x-rayed in detail. You can see it at Birmingham Museum as well. They've got a gallery devoted to the hoard. There's a small display at Litchfield Cathedral in the Chapter House, along with material of a similar date, including the St Chad Gospels, which are fantastic to see, same sort of date, and a wonderful carved Angel Gabriel of the same sort of date or slightly later. There's a small display at Tamworth Castle Museum as well. And there are online resources, which would be the best starting point. So staffordshirehoard.org.uk the stokemuseums.org.uk website as well and Birmingham Museums websites but they're all accessible from staffordshirehoard.org.uk which is our joint website and there are regular blogs on there and you can ask questions on there and I've also given you the details that you can access the newsletter now there's a newsletter which the researchers are putting out because it's quite a big team of researchers and so every so often a newsletter comes out which is, goes out into the public domain So we're trying to get as much information as as we can out, but bear with us because we're all working like crazy. Well, I'll let you get back to work, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you for asking me. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also go over to Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory, or you can follow us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and you can also join the forums. There's a lot of fun stuff going on over there. To get there, all you have to do is go to my website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click on Get Involved, and click Forums. All right, thanks for listening.